1: Hi, this is Caleb Zachron, your host for New Books and Math, a channel on the New Books Network. Our guest today is Jim Stein, author of Seduced by Mathematics. I think the subtitle, The Enduring Fascination of Mathematics, gives you some hint as to what this book is about. So let's just get right to it. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me, Caleb. Of course. uh, You know, let's just uh, start at at the top with the uh, title. So, Jim, where does the title Seduced by Mathematics come from?
0: Well, there are actually two groups of people in the world. There are those who will know exactly what I'm talking about when they read the title seduced by mathematics. And then there's everybody else, which is most of the world. And Mm -hmm. so what I wanted to do was I wanted to write a book which would indicate why we are seduced by mathematics. And one good thing to do is to sort of compare it with mystery stories, because a lot of people like mystery stories. And of course, in a mystery story, the fact that there's a murder isn't really interesting. The crime itself is not really interesting. It's the procedure that the detective goes through to unravel who committed the murder that uh, is interesting. But in math, it's different. Not only is the crime itself interesting, also the process of unraveling what the solution to the puzzle is is also interesting. And there's a great example of this, which has fascinated a lot of people, called the Monty Hall problem. And the Monty Hall problem comes from the TV show Let's Make a Deal and the host was Monty Hall, who passed away a few years ago. But at the end of the show, there's a large prize behind one of three doors, and uh, the doors are numbered one, two, and three. And Monty obviously knows which door the big prize is behind. And so he says to the contestant, well, pick a door and we'll give you the prize that's behind that door. So let's say that the contestant picks door number two. Now, Monty, remember that Monty knows which door the prize is behind. So he goes to door number one, which and opens it, and there's no prize behind it. And of course, if there were a prize behind it, uh, he'd be fired from the show. And then he says to the contestant, okay, there's no prize behind door number one. You pick door number two. Now, I'll give you the opportunity to switch to door number three. Do you want to stay with door number two or switch to door number three? And this is an extremely interesting problem because when most people are presented with it, they say one of two things. They either say, well, what does it matter? matter. It's 50-50. It's either behind door two or door three. um, And they're both equally likely. Or they say, aha, I picked the right door. He's trying to con me into switching to door three. The prize is not behind door three to save the sponsor some money. But the idea is that it's right to switch. And it's right to switch because the prize is twice as likely to be behind door three. And most people, when they hear this, they think you're kidding. They they think that there's something wrong here, but the way to see that is, that this is the correct answer is to ma- imagine that instead of there being three doors, there were say a thousand doors, and let's say you pick door two just like you did originally. And Monty Hall now goes around, opens door one, no prize, opens door four, no prize, door five, et cetera, through door 1,000, opens 998 doors, no prizes are behind any one of them, and offers you the opportunity to switch. Well, do you really think that you were so incredibly lucky that with 1,000 doors you picked the right one the first time? No, it's almost certain that the prize is behind door three. And the same example, uh, the same reasoning applies to when there are three doors. And so this is one of the things that's seductive about mathematics. Not only is the answer seductive, it's something you didn't suspect, but the line of reasoning that leads you to the correct answer is also seductive.
1: I'm not sure exactly uh, why, but I have actually been shown the Monty Hall problem or that particular clip. Uh, I don't know if there's multiple, but I've been shown it maybe three or four times in my uh, experience in middle school and high school, uh, and I think that that was actually the best explanation of it because I never understood why, uh, <laughs> but but it does make sense. If You have a thousand doors, of course you're not going to pick the the you know the correct one on the first go, uh, and you know just kind of jumping off this, uh, you know I was wondering if you could just talk about your experience as a teacher and uh, how it led you to write this book.
0: Oh. <sighs> Well, when I was a teacher, I taught at Cal State Long Beach, and every spring we had a day at Cal State Long Beach where the teachers would give different demonstrations, and we would invite all the elementary schools to come in and watch what goes on at a university. And I had a demonstration that involved mathematical puzzles and magic tricks that involved mathematics, and it was very popular. And I would often have the same teachers coming back to see me year after year. And one year, one of them came up to me and said, "You know, Jim, we always poll the students at the end of uh, uh, at the end of the day and ask them which class which demonstrations they enjoyed most, and you always finish number two so the first thing that occurred to me was that's pretty good, and then the second thing that occurred to me was, well." what was the demonstration that beat me for number one? I mean, I can recognize a straight line when I I hear one. So I said, okay, what was the number one demonstration? And they said, it's always the boa constrictor. Well, I wasn't going to be able to squeeze live live mice to death and then swallow them. So uh, uh, I had to go with what I had. But I thought about it. These demonstrations have always been very effective. Why don't I try writing up what it is that makes these things so appealing, not only to elementary school students, but of course, as I mentioned at the start, to the group of people who find mathematics seductive. And so that's basically what the book is. It's a collection of things that I've found that people react uh, positively to. They say, hey, that's really interesting, like the Monty Hall problem. And also uh, some of the things that have appealed to me over the years that maybe some other people aren't so familiar with.
1: What about for you know, those uh, like, my, like myself and maybe uh, even less uh, mathy than myself as a non-math person? Uh, can this book be understood by us?
0: um yes it can a lot of the book can be understood um would i uh the first few chapters can be understood by elementary school students um then after a while maybe you need a little algebra and geometry but it's not the type of algebra and de- geometry that's excruciating and uh then Towards the latter portion of the book, because there are some tremendously seductive things that occur at college level courses at the calculus level and beyond. I wanted to put those in the book because they've been uh, they've been appealing to me. And one of the things that happened recently is that one of my former students um, said that her daughter saw her nine year old daughter saw one of my demonstrations on the internet, and she was so taken by them that she what she wanted to do was she wanted to learn them and demonstrate them to her class. And this book is essentially written for her daughter as her daughter learns more and more about math. She's nine years old, but she can read the first few chapters. Then as she learns more and more math, she'll be able to read more chapters and so on, depending upon what level that she gets to. And even if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you ought to be, for instance, if you read, you know, if you read the portion of the book, there are things that are fairly advanced topics in mathematics, but you might get some idea of what it is that I find appealing to it. I remember my father, who was uh, my father when he was seventy years old. He didn't major in math in college. He majored in econ, and he, you know, he had sort of a math background. He always liked mathematics, but he would go to lectures on mathematics, even though he didn't understand them completely, um, because he sort of liked the flavor of it. And it there's this flavor to higher level mathematics. I talk about some of the things that appeal to me later on. I hope we get to them in this uh, uh, during the course of this interview. But my feeling is that this book is written for hopefully everybody.
1: So, you know, starting with that, the first chapter begins very simply with with just numbers. It's called Seduced by Numbers. Can you talk about this chapter and what you discuss in it?
0: Okay, well, this has the best example of the importance of numbers that I've ever seen. And it was unearthed by Jordan Ellenberg, who wrote it up in his book called How Not to Be Wrong. And that's a wonderful book. But back in 1943, while all the physicists were in Los Alamos, New Mexico, trying to construct an atom bomb, the remaining really bright, nerdy people, mathematicians and other physicists, were at a place. Called the Statistical Research Group, located uh, located in the Bronx, and the Army would come into them with a bunch of off the wall problems and ask them for solutions, and. One of the problems that they came into, uh, that they came into, to uh, address the statistical research group, was a problem of where to put the armor on fighter planes that were being shot down. And what the Army had done is it had compiled statistics. They divided the fighter planes into four sections. I think they were engine, fuselage, uh, wings and tail section. And what they'd done is they'd computed the average number of bullet holes per square foot that they found in planes that returned from their missions. Obviously, they couldn't count the ones that didn't return. And so they had these, this information. And they didn't know what to make of it, um, and so they presented it to the various people at the statistical research group. And one of the people there was Abraham Wald, who turned out to be one of the most uh, brilliant statisticians of the 20th century. And for purposes of this discussion, let's do, let's just assume that the numbers that the army had uh, that the army had uh, compiled were one, two three and four. Maybe there was one bullet hole per square foot in the tail, two bullet holes per square foot in the, on the engine, et cetera. And so Abraham Wald looked at this and says, well, what you have to do is you have to put it on the, uh, you have to put the extra armor on the section with, that only had one bullet hole per square foot. And the army said, well, Why? And Abraham Wald said, look at the extreme case, just like the example that I gave you with the Monty Hall problem. Suppose that there's some section of the plane which has no bullet holes on it. What would that mean? Well, it wouldn't mean that this portion of the plane was absolutely immune to enemy fire. It would mean that every time a bullet hit that section of the plane, it went down. So what the numbers were is they were a measure of the vulnerability of the plane. And the lower the number, the more vulnerable that section was. And that has nothing to do with arithmetic, nothing to do with algebra, nothing to do with geometry. It's just numbers. And that's what makes mathematics seductive. Here's a problem which is so difficult that the army needs to approach the brightest mathematicians to resolve it. And the solution can be understood by an
1: elementary school student. Yeah, that's really a uh, fascinating. Uh, it's also like a really interesting example of how to solve a problem when you're missing data uh, and how oftentimes like we think of these problems as like being the most complicated problems. Uh, but, you know, here you give an example of where it's just a simple matter of, of counting. Uh, your, your next chapter uh, moves from numbers to arithmetic. It's called Seduced by Arithmetic. Can you talk about the examples that you've described in, the, in that chapter?
0: Well, we talked earlier about my demonstrations that I gave when I was in school, and one of the demonstrations I always called last digit standing. It's an example. uh, The basic idea is due to Art Benjamin, who's a speed calculator and uh, a good friend of mine, who's a professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College um, over in Claremont. And... It relies upon the fact that um, if you have a number that is a multiple of nine, the sum of the digits are also a multiple of nine. An example would be that my sister was born on June 21st, 1944. If you write that out in numbers, it's 6211. One nine four four, and so I'm going to add up the numbers for you. Six plus two is eight. Plus one is nine. That's six twenty one. Plus one is ten. Plus nine is nineteen. Plus four is twenty three. Plus another four is twenty seven. And uh, twenty seven is divisible by nine. And if you get out your calculator, six hundred six million two hundred nineteen thousand. Woof. Six two one. One, nine, four, four will be divisible by nine. And that's what this trick relies upon. And here's the way that I perform it. Um, What I do is I get, first of all, I have a deck of cards, which has the aces, the tens, and the face cards removed. So it just consists of uh, the cards two through nine. And I invite uh, invite 10 school children to come up and each take each pick a card from uh, from the strip deck of cards just the numbers two through nine and write them on the board with a multiplication sign on it so for instance you might get two times seven times five etc There are going to be ten digits uh, There are going to be ten digits there and then I ask someone uh, uh, before this demonstration is begun usually the uh, group comes in with a teacher and I ask the teacher to blind Blindfold me before then, so I don't see what kids the ch- what cards the children are picking, and I don't see the product six times two times seven times five etc. on the board. I'm completely blindfolded. But then what I ask them to do is I ask the teacher to take a calculator, multiply all these one digit numbers out and write the number on the board and check it to make sure that, uh, uh, I usually, I sometimes would have a graduate student in as a helper also to check that the product was correct. So what would usually happen is I'd get a six, seven or eight digit number on the board, much like six, two, one, one, nine, four, four. That's what would be on the board. And then what I would ask the, uh, then what I would ask the, uh, teacher who came with a group of class with a class to do is to erase the digits one at a time in any order and call them out to me as they erase them for instance one let's once again look at 6211944 they might erase one of the fours first and they'd say four and then they might erase the six and they'd say six and then they'd erase the nine and say nine and when only one digit remained, the last numbers, the last digit standing, I'm blindfolded. I've never seen this number. And I would say the last digit on the board is a seven. And I was right 39 times out of 40. And there's a reason for that. And um, everybody is just blown away. How can you do this? well, the fact is that I know that the number that um, i won't say that I know that the number is a multiple of nine, but because I have ten students coming up picking cards from this deck, if one of them picks a nine or two of them pick three either a three or a six, there will be a product of nine in the 10 digits that are on the board. That happens 39 times out of 40. That's why I can say 39 out of 40. So what will happen is that as they read off the numbers, say, for instance, 6, two, seven, whatever. Um, when there's only one digit left, all I have to do is subtract from the next multiple of nine. Suppose I have a running total of 23. The next mu- multiple of nine is 27. So I know that in order to, for the sum of the digits to total 27, the missing digit has to be a four. And it just blows everybody away. And it's simple arithmetic. That. And it's a lot of fun to do. Um, I've, done this dom- I've done this demonstration so many times. Art Benjamin, I saw it. Art Benjamin did a version of it at uh, the Magic Castle in Hollywood just for adults. And it blows them away. And he didn't throw in the blindfold trick that I do. Um, so, <laughs> so it's really a lot of fun. And it's you know it's one of the things that when the children learn how easy it is, they can't wait to demonstrate it to their uh, you know to their parents.
1: I, I was going to say, and I was thinking the whole time that you know you're you're essentially performing uh, magic tricks, and you know it's interesting that you have this example of a uh, magician performing it, uh, essentially the, you know, the, obviously it's not magic, it's math, but, you know, lots of.
0: There's, there's a, a lot of magic tricks depend upon mathematics in one way or another.
1: Not all of them, obviously, but, but a number of them do. Right, exactly. Especially, I feel like, especially, you know, a lot of card tricks do. Uh, or, or you, a, you know, in addition a sleight of hand, uh, you know, moving right. on, it, it, what you were doing before is obviously a form of a pattern recognition, and the, the next chapter focuses on patterns. It's called "Seduced by Patterns." Uh, listeners probably notice a theme um, with the, uh, the, the titles. We would hope, right? But they might see a pattern. Uh, so, could you talk about "Seduced by Patterns" and different uh, geometrical patterns?
0: Um, sure. Um, in fact, one of the reasons that patterns are so important is that patterns are to some extent the underlying template on which virtually all of mathematics is built in fact there uh, um, i don 't know how long ago it was, but there was an article in uh, there was an article in i think it was uh, Uh, science magazine which is the publication of the american association of advancement of science it was called mathematics the science of patterns and that base that's basically uh that's basically what it is and for instance one of the uh one of the tricks that i did for uh Uh, that I did for students. I wouldn't exactly say it's a trick, but this is one of the demonstrations that I had. I'd like you to imagine um, what I had is I had large pieces of uh, cardboard which had been ruled into an eight by eight square. So there were 64 squares on it, eight rows of eight squares a piece, just 64 white squares. And what I did was I had a number of two by one squares that sort of look like dominoes with which you could cover these pieces of cardboard. In fact, if I were to give you 30 each one of these two by one dominoes is two squares, one right next to each other. And, you know, if you've ever seen a domino, that's what a domino looks like. It's two squares right next to each other. And so I'd made out two by one squares. Um, except that they were just sort of little rectangles. They didn't have any markings on them. And I would give them to the students and I'd say, okay, here's what I would like you to do. I'd like you to cover the cardboard with these two-by-one rectangles without missing any squares and without leaving any square, any uh, without having any tiles dangle over the edge. Well, of course they see it. They see how to do this pretty quickly. Each the uh, eight by eight, cardboard is eight rows of four tiles a piece. If you put four two-by-one tiles right next to each other, it covers a row. So given 32 tiles, you put four on row one, four row on, on row two, four on row three, four on row four. It covers it, and the children have no difficulty with this. Then what I do is I ask them to cut out one of the corner squares, and I say, Well, can you do it? And of course, uh, several of the students try to do it, but some of them see immediately that you can't because each square is, uh, each tile rather, each domino has two squares in it. The original board had 64 squares in it, but now this has 63 in it. 63 is an odd number, and when you add up a bunch of twos, you're going to get an even number so you're going to have to have one left over or you're going to miss us or you're going to miss a square so they they can see that there's sort of an easy numerical reason why you can't do it with 63 but now here comes the hidden pattern let's say they cut off the they cut out the one square that's in the lower right hand corner i asked them to cut out the one square that's in the diagonally opposite corner say it's in the upper left-hand corner as opposed to the lower right-hand corner and i asked them to try to cover it and now all of a sudden that uh the odd and even pattern trick doesn't work anymore because there are now 62 squares and 62 is an even number and every two by one rectangle covers two squares so it looks like you ought to be able to do it so they try for a while and they see that they can't do it and um so what I do is I let them try for a few minutes and nobody's able to do it and then I would say that this is a great example of a problem that involves a hidden pattern and I take out an ordinary checkerboard now a checkerboard um remember that the that the cardboard that I originally gave them was totally white or totally plain it did have the squares ruled in um, but there's no coloring on the, uh, on the original piece of cardboard. But if you take out a checkerboard, it is colored. The uh, checkerboard is alternately colored in red and black squares. And if you take a look at the squares that are on the opposite diagonal, for instance, the lower right-hand corner and the upper left-hand corner, they're on the same diagonal. All the squares on that diagonal are the same color. So if the lower right-hand corner is red, the upper left-hand corner is red as well. So what the 62 squares are, you've removed two red squares, and so you have 32 black squares and 30 red squares, 32 black 30 red, but each domino covers one black and one red square. So if you have 31 dominoes, they're going to cover 31 black squares and 31 red squares, and it just won't work. So there's a hidden pattern to the blank cardboard, and that's revealed when you color them alternately like a checkerboard would be colored.
1: The next thing that you talk about, and this is sort of continuing with the geometry theme, is is you talk about analytic geometry. Can you talk about some of the ideas around this that you find so interesting?
0: Sure. Um, well, I must admit, um, one of the uh, difficulties that I had with mathematics because nobody goes through mathematics courses totally unscathed. And I had a really easy time with algebra and uh, algebra and arithmetic. Um, for some reason, you know, my mind just worked that way. I was always very, very involved and enjoyed working with numbers. Um, but when I hit geometry, I had a really difficult time. I'm not a really visual person. Geometry is tremendously visual. And um, I had uh, an experience of getting Bs in math courses when I took geometry. never happened to me before. And um, there are a lot of mathematicians who absolutely, if you ask them the first thing that they found seductive about mathematics, they'd say geometry. To give you an example, Napoleon solved geometry problems. Presidents of the United States came up with proofs of the Pythagorean theorem. Um, There's even, uh, uh, there there are episodes in, uh, there are episodes in movies where people are, were Working on geometry problems. Um, but geometry never really interested me. And when I came to analytic geometry problem, all of a sudden they grabbed my attention. Because analytic geometry was essentially invented by oh, invented by uh, the French philosopher Rene Descartes. And I always used to think that um, he stuck two pages of analytic geometry at the end of a 1,000-page tract on philosophy. And nobody except philosophy majors knows what was in those 1,000 pages, but everybody knows what's in the analytic geometry. It's so important. And what analytic geometry, first of all, enables you to do is it enables you to see more patterns. Um, There are patterns that are accessible to analytic geometry because it enables the, it integrates both algebra and geometry. And if you take a look at what the Greeks, who were, the Greeks were tremendously brilliant. Um, I have nothing but admiration for the Greeks because they didn't have pencil and paper. God knows what they wrote this stuff down with. Um, they had scrolls, but if you used a scroll, that scroll was used, you could never use it again. I know that Archimedes had something that he called the sand reckoner where he did a lot of calculations. He wrote things down in sand. They wrote things on tablets. But because they all they had was basically euclidean geometry there was a limited number of curves that they could investigate of course they could investigate straight lines and circles which are the basis of plane geometry but they also knew about planes that are called uh, curves that are called conic sections the ellipse the hyperbola and the parabola the greeks knew about these but a uh, of the more complicated curves, for instance, there's no indication that the Greeks had any idea of exponential curves, logarithmic curves, um, curves with uh, that uh, curves representing higher degree polynomials, and certainly none of, none of the curves that represent advanced mathematical functions that you know things such as Bessel functions, Legendre functions that you hear of in more advanced mathematics courses. And so there was really a limited amount of geometry that they could do. But by enabling uh, a visualization of algebra, it not only made it possible to visualize things that algebra was telling you, but it enabled you to work geometrically with structures that only algebra previously had access to. So it was just a marvelously seductive tool. And also, in addition to which, one of the things that I always liked about analytic geometry is it made a tremendous amount of the, uh, a number of the proofs that are just excruciating in plain geometry a whole lot easier. And for, uh, I think most of the people who are listening to this probably have at least a recollection of the basic plane of the analytic, you know, the x y plane and analytic geometry, and one of the pro- one of the proofs that I always liked is that if you look at the proof that. A tangent to a circle is perpendicular to the radius at the point of contact. That's a nightmare to prove in plane geometry because you have to go through something that is called an indirect proof. And those are excruciating, non-intuitive, and very uncomfortable. But it's a slam dunk if you have a Euclidean plane. All you do is take a circle of radius one centered at the origin and then draw Uh, draw the straight line at X equals one. That's obviously tangent to the circle because if you look at any point on the straight line, uh, X equal one, the only point that's within distance one of the origin is the point with coordinates X equal one, Y equals zero. And it's obviously perpendicular to the radius at the point of contact because um, if you take the line X equal one, it's perpendicular to the X axis, there you are. You know, no indirect proof, it's just there on the diagram and just simple, you know, a couple of simple calculations. And so that's why I loved analytic geometry.
1: Something that you discuss in the book, which is actually something that I've wondered for, for a really long time, is about mathematical induction and why people look for ways to avoid it. So I was wondering if you could talk about this topic.
0: Um, sure. Um, one of the, as I said, I was always intrigued by numbers when I was growing up and I found patterns in numbers. And here's one of the first patterns I found. I remember, actually, I had this old Smith Corona typewriter and I would type stuff down and show it to my parents. And here's a pattern that I noticed when I was maybe seven or eight years old. If you add one and two, you get three. 3 is 1 less than 4, which is the next power of 2. 1 plus 2 plus 4, that's equal to 7, which is 1 less than 8, the next power of 2. 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 is 15, which is 1 less than 16, which is the next power of 2. 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 plus 16 is 31 one less than 32, which is the next power of two. So what I wondered about is, first of all, does this pattern go on forever? In other words, if you start by adding one plus two plus four plus eight up to a particular power of two, is the answer one less than the next power of two? And if so, how would you go about proving it? Well, you know, it struck me because I was seven or eight of at the time, how do you go about proving an infinite, you know, I knew that this would be an infinite number of statements, but I would never—I had no idea of how one would go about proving an infinite number of statements. And I certainly wasn't going to spend the rest of my life checking this out for 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 plus 16 plus 32 plus 64 plus 128, etc. But anyway, it turns out that there's a tool called mathematical induction, which enables you to prove an infinite number. Of statements. And what mathematical induction does is it's basically a stepladder. It thinks of the proper, uh, it thinks of you're making a statement about the number one, and that's the first step on the stepladder. Then you're making a statement about the number two. That's the second step on the step ladder. Then you're making a step, uh, prop, uh, statement about the number three. That's the second, third step on the step ladder. So what you have is a step ladder reaching infinitely up with each one of the steps representing a step on, uh, uh, a statement about an integer, for instance, one plus two plus four equals seven, which is two to the third minus one. that's a statement about the number three. You're adding up the first three powers of three powers of two rather two to the zero plus two to the one plus two to the two. Is it equal to two to the three minus one statement about the number three? So the way that mathematical induction goes about proving this is here's the idea of mathematical induction. Suppose you can prove the statement for number uh, statement number one, the bottom rung of the ladder. And suppose also that you have a method of going from any step to the next higher step. In other words, a way of if you're standing on one step, you have a procedure to getting up to the next step. That's in, in mathematical terms, that's called P of n implies P of n plus one. Then the statement is true for all integers, and that's the essence of what mathematical induction is, and usually mathematical induction is first introduced to students in an algebra course in high school. It's introduced at the end. We give them a couple of simple ones and then sort of stop telling them about mathematical induction. But mathematical induction can be used in higher level math courses to And there are some lovely proofs involving mathematical induction. In fact, um, when I wrote my PhD thesis, there was a truly lovely mathematical induction proof in one of the papers that I used, which was written by my thesis advisor. And I was so captivated by this proof that I was able to use it. And it's one of the reasons that I ended up getting a PhD. So I've always been in love with it. But I've also liked the idea that there are ways to get around Around needing mathematical induction. And go back to the problem that I was talking about earlier, adding up the powers of two. Um, here's a very simple way to see that the sum of the powers of two is one less than the next powers of two. Um, and as an example, um, uh, many of the listeners will be familiar with um, March Madness, the annual NCAA championship basketball tournament, which has 64 entrants in it. 64 entrants, 64 is a power of two, it's two to the sixth. Now, in the first round of the tournament, 32 teams lose. In the second round of the tournament, 16 teams lose. In the third round of the tournament, eight teams lose. In the, uh, in the quarterfinals, four teams lose. In the semifinal, two teams lose. And in the final, one team loses. So the total number of losers in the NCAA tournament is one plus two plus four plus eight plus 16 plus 32. There's one winner remaining. The total number of entrants is 64. That's the one winner plus the 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 8 plus 16 plus 32 losers. So there's one winner. It's equal to the number of entrants minus the number of losers. The number of entrants is 2 to the 6th sixty four the number of losers is one plus two plus four plus eight plus sixteen plus thirty two and there's the proof without requiring mathematical induction and I got a bunch of those in the chapter, and one is more fascinating than the other there's a version involving uh, this, uh, the one that they usually culminate in an algebra course in high school is the binomial theorem. Um, you need to know a little combinatorics to get uh, to avoid uh, to avoid using mathematical induction to prove the binomial theorem, but it's not really all that difficult.
1: So optimization problems are a staple of first-year calculus. Uh, what, what's seductive about them?
0: <laughs> um, well... This is one of the first things that blew me away. But when I was taking calculus, I loved calculus. Um, there, there's so much about calculus that I ju- that uh, I just found absolutely appealing, and I still teach. Um, I still teach and. Um, I teach at a community college because I I retired from Cal State Long Beach about 10 years ago, but I teach generally one calculus course a semester and I still love it. Um, Doesn't matter whether it's first or second or third year calculus, they're all great. Um, But optimization problems are finding the best possible way to do something, whether it's the cheapest way to uh, to manufacture something or uh, the quickest way to get from one point to another or the least amount of material that needs to be manufactured. To do something. In fact, one of the problems that I always show students in first-year uh, calculus is, if you ever go into uh, if you ever go into a supermarket and buy a can of soup, you'll notice that all the cans of soup have roughly the same shape, and they're not shaped like pizza dishes, which are, have very, uh, you know, they're all cylinders. But if you look at a pizza, a pizza has a very large radius and a very small height. And if you look at a long strand of spaghetti, that has a very narrow, very small radius and a very large height. Why are soup cans manufactured in precisely the shape they are. And calculus shows you that. It shows you that this is the right way to manufacture the shape of a can that uses the least amount of material to contain a fixed amount of soup. But one of the things that I also like about calculus is that a lot of calculus problems are solved in a really excruciating way by algebra. And Uh, what one normally does in a calculus problem is one parameterizes it by setting up a variable. They say let X equal this distance or let, uh, and you go ahead and uh, define all the quantities in terms of X and, You go through some calculus types of procedures. But one of the things that I always found uh, seductive about calculus is that um, trigonometric parametrization, which very few books talk about, um, enables you to do an awful lot of problems in calculus Um, Very easily, because a lot of the problems in calculus involve expressions that involve something like the square root of x squared plus 16. Now, this comes from the Pythagorean theorem, and it's very difficult to do the calculus manipulations which are usually which are called differentiation on complicated expressions like the square root of x squared plus 16 but if you express these things trigonometrically it turns out that they're four tangent theta or something like that and It's as if trigonometry is the shorthand that calculus needs in order to make these problems fairly easily. So this is the type of thing that you find seductive, but you have to take a calculus course to do it.
1: The next topic that you discuss is complex numbers. What makes complex numbers seductive?
0: Okay. Well, um, complex numbers are uh, a discovery that actually I'm not exactly sure where complex numbers first showed up, but they probably first showed up in the quadratic formula when people were solving quadratics. And um, there's uh, it's it's interesting in terms of what are these things called imaginary numbers. Um, in fact, they, uh, in fact, Descartes, who invented analytic geometry, he's the guy who gave. I, the square root of minus one, the term imaginary numbers, because they don't seem to appear in the real world. They just appear as solutions to equations that Descartes never used. Um, but one of the things that I like about it is that they show up all over in the most unexpected places in physics. For instance, if you look at the way Einstein Uh, Einstein's theory of relativity work, uh, the way Newton described the universe was as a three-dimensional space in which these various three-dimensional spaces are snapshots in time. And you take a movie of the universe and you've got the universe is a three-dimensional space at nine o'clock and it's a slightly different three dimensional space at nine Oh one, et cetera. That's the way Newton saw it. But Einstein saw it as, um, all four of the th- of the coordinates, three space and one time, actually blended into uh, something that you know that uh, a four dimensional structure. And the fourth dimension, time, is parameterized by means of imaginary numbers. And these things, the imaginary numbers, show up all over physics, and they have interpretations: quantum mechanics, electromagnetism, all over the place. But as a man- mathematician, what I always liked. Was was what mathematicians consider the most seductive formula in mathematics. And that's the formula e to the i pi plus 1 equals 0. There are five constants in this. The constant 0, which is the additive identity. The constant 1, which is the multiplicative identity. Pi, which is, you know, the ratio of a circumference of a circle to its diameter, E, which is the basic constant of all natural growth processes i, which is the square root of minus one, these all apparently disparate constants, disparate constants, they're all in that one formula, e to the i pi plus one equals zero. And I always thought of this as it's sort of like, um, recently my wife and I saw a wonderful play. It was called The Million Dollar Quartet. It's about one day in, I think, December 1958, when four great rock and roll musicians, Carl Perkins, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Elvis Presley showed up at the Sun Records studio. And four legends showing up on one stage for one night. Amazing. And here you've got the five legends of mathematical constants showing up in one formula. What's not to love?
1: I was always in, when I first learned about uh, Euler's number, I was very intrigued by, I know, I know that, that it's uh, yeah, I, I still have never <laughs> really grasped uh, what what it means, uh, but <laughs> I was always fascinated by how this these certain you know n- numbers like pi just seem to appear over and over and over again. It's just extremely remarkable. Uh, the, the next topic that that you discuss is infinite series. Uh, it's just something that that I'm very interested in. I would say of all of everything in in math, I've always been fascinated by. Infinite series. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, what makes them so fascinating.
0: Okay, well, um, uh, because I want to get through as much of uh, uh, as much of the interview as possible, let me highlight one of the uh, one of the examples that I consider seductive that um, uh, I constructed for the book. It's something called Riemann's casino. Now, there's a theorem by Riemann on what are called rearrangements of conditionally convergent series, Um, but it's easy to envision as follows. Let's imagine that you have a casino, and here's what happens. This casino has an infinite number of tables, numbered 1, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, et cetera. And here's what happens if you go to the table. At table number one, you lose a dollar. At table number two, you win a dollar. At table number three, you lose a dollar. At table number four, you win a half dollar. At table number five, you lose a dollar. At table number six, you win a third of a dollar. At table number seven, you lose a dollar. At table number eight, you win a quarter of a dollar. In other words, at the odd numbered tables, every odd numbered table, you lose a dollar. Every even numbered table, you win um, You win a fraction of a dollar. At you win, the fractions that you win are one, one half, one third, one quarter, one fifth, one sixth, one-seventh, etc. Now, the rule at Riemann's Casino is that you must play at every table. So the question is, what's going to happen to you if you take your bankroll and go to Riemann's Casino? Well, the natural thing that occurs to you is that, well, if I go and play at the tables in numerical order, at table one and two, I break even. But at table three and four, I lose a dollar at table three. I win a, do- a half a dollar at table four. Okay, I've lost money here. Table five, I lose a dollar. Table six, I win a third of a dollar. I've lost money here. So if I go through the ta- if I go through the casino like this, I'm a big loser. In fact, I'm going to lose an infinite amount of dollars. That's not good. But the interesting thing is that You're not required to go through the casino playing in numerical order. And here's what you can do. And this is Riemann's theorem on conditionally convergent, rearrangements of conditionally convergent infinite series. Um, What you can do is you can first go to table one, and then you go to tables two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, etc., until you have ended up winning more than a dollar. Then you go to table three, where you lose a dollar. Then you continue in the process, going to enough even numbered tables so that you win more than a dollar. And it turns out that because of these particular numbers, there's a way to play at all the tables and still come out with more money than there is in the universe.
1: Uh, that's, that's really fascinating. I've never heard, uh, heard of that, that problem before, the Casino.
0: Well, you you don't encounter the, the theorem from which it's based until you go to an advanced theorem in mathematics. But there's a lot of stuff that you can see and, you know, that advanced mathematics, that people that what I try and do, one of the things that I try to do to make mathematics appealing is I try to give tastes of what there is later on at a lower level, because these things, you know, what, as I said, at the start of this, uh, at the start of this interview, what makes mathematics appealing is that it's got fascinating results and fascinating lines of reasoning. And it just blows me away that everybody isn't blown away by it.
1: Right, that's, yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's definitely, you know, I I think many of the examples you've discussed so far are are very mind blowing. And, you know, the next topic uh, that you discuss is probability. And I think that probability is probably the subject in math that, you know, people on a, on an everyday basis probably, (laughs) or probably engage with. (laughs) (laughs) Good choice of words.
0: (laughs) um well the Montreal problem is obviously a problem in probability but when i retired i mean i uh, uh one of the things sadly that happens as you get older is that your mental faculties uh uh dwindle in the sense that I don't think I'm that much dumber than I was when I was younger, but my powers of concentration are not that great. And in order to word, in order to do mathematical research, you really have to be able to concentrate intensively. And I'm not—I uh, can't do that as much anymore. But I was fortunate because uh, because when I retired, I said, oh, "Well, what am I going to think about?" And a friend of mine showed me something called Blackwell's bet, and Blackwell's bet, and variations of Blackwell bet have occupied my attention ever since for the past five or six years, and it's fascinating. So first of all, David Blackwell, wh- who David Blackwell was, is a fascinating story. Um, David Blackwell was the first Black to be elected to the National Academy of Sciences. And Just to indicate that, you know, you look at what's happening in the news and it's not always, you know, it's not always a pretty picture. But think about the David Blackwell story is sort of heartening because David Blackwell was recognized as having an amazing talent. And in the late 1930s, he was given a fellowship to the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton, where he was promptly forbidden to attend lectures because he was black. Ridiculous. Um, Then later on, um, he was applying for a position at the University of California at Berkeley. And one of the leading statisticians of the time, a guy named Jersey Neyman, was very much a Blackwell proponent and wanted Blackwell on the faculty. But the chairman of the math department was a guy named Griff Evans, and Griff Evans's wife was from Texas, and she was equipped with Southern prejudices, and it was uh, the—it was the custom for the chair of the department to invite um new faculty members over to his house for dinner to welcome them and griffith evans wife says i'm not having a black in my house um and so uh blackwell was turned down spent Uh, spent a number of years teaching at a Southern college. And then in the mid-50s, like Bob Dylan said, the times they were changing, um, Blackwell uh, uh, got tenure at the University of California at Berkeley and had an absolutely amazing career, during which he devised this problem, which blew me away. Here's the idea. You have two envelopes. Let's say they're white and brown, and each one of these envelopes has a different sum of money in them and the idea is to end up with the envelope which has the most sum of money. But you're not allowed to open both of them. You only open one of them. So let's say you open one of them and you see there's $87.65 in it. And now you're offered the following opportunity. You can either keep the money in that envelope, or you can switch and take the contents of the other envelope. And Um, it looks like it's one of those 50-50 things. Who knows what's in the other envelope? If there's a million dollars, I'd love to take it. If there's a cent, penny, I'd rather stick with the amount of money that I have. Um, But how are you possibly to know? Blackwell devised this absolutely brilliant way of, uh, that I would never have thought of, never in a million years. Here's what Blackwell said. Pick a random number. Doesn't matter how you pick it. Maybe it's the amount of money in your checking account. Um, Maybe it's the page number of a book that you're reading. Just pick any random number and compare it with the amount of money in the envelope that you opened. If it's less than the amount of money in the envelope that you opened, keep the amount of money in the envelope that you opened. If it's more than the amount of money in the envelope that you opened, switch and take the money in the other envelope. And you do have to do a little algebra to show that this is the correct answer, but it's nothing that an algebra one student would even find remotely troubling. And when I saw this, it absolutely blew me away. And um, there are problems related to this that have enthralled me for the past four or five years, and they don't require really high power math to understand, which is a good thing because I've forgotten all the really high power math I ever knew.
1: Without needing to go too deeply into that, can you give a little of an explanation of why that is the case? Because that's so it's so bizarre. That's very bizarre to me. That, that would work um
0: uh, okay uh, actually yes there's there's an intuitive explanation that I think you can understand perfectly um so let's divide the random uh let's divide the uh let's look at the following intervals the uh let's say that you there are there are two um, amounts of money let's call them smaller and larger okay that's a, which they are okay if The random, uh, uh, if the random number is less, let's say that you pick a random number and it turns out to be less than the number, the money in the envelope you chose. Well, if it's less than the smaller amount, you'll do the wrong thing. But if it's bigger than the smaller amount, you'll do the right thing. Similarly, if the number that you chose is – if you had chosen to lo- the larger envelope initially and the random number was less than that, you'll do the uh, – you'll – do the right thing but if it's bigger you'll do the wrong thing but if the random number is between the amounts of uh, money in the smaller and larger envelope and let's take actual numbers as an example just suppose there's $50 in the smaller num- uh, envelope $100 is the larger amount and you pick the random number 75 okay can you yeah, live with 50 that, that, 75 that and 100 okay now suppose you pick the smaller amount The random number is 75. It's bigger than 50, so you should switch. You make the right decision. Suppose that you picked $100. Suppose that you happen to open the envelope with $100 in. The random number is 75. It's smaller than 100. So it tells you that you should keep the money. In other words, the number 75 is, you hope that you get a random number of 70, that you hope that you get a random number that's between the smaller and larger number because the selection rule. Will always enable you to make the right choice, and then the other two cases where it makes the the other two cases it makes the right choice half the time and the wrong choice half the time. So intuitively, um, the larger the interval between the smaller and larger amounts, the more likely it is that this process will enable you to make the correct decision that's the intuitive reason that this technique works I, yeah. but you do need the algebra to satisfy yourself
1: that yeah that, that explanation makes a lot of sense though and it's definitely not uh, a line of reasoning that I would think through uh, what I like about it is the way in which you know it's just how you it picks a random number or it, it sort of creates inform it creates information uh, or a context where there isn't any Uh And yeah, that's very fascinating. I can see why.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is, and this is one of the things that I've always tried to do as a teacher. I've been so lucky because I mean, I, uh, uh, I found a job that I just absolutely loved. I never had a day that I didn't walk into class looking forward to. It. Well, that's partially because I enjoy having a captive audience, like everybody listening to this. Well, they're not captive; they have tuned in <laughs> on their own volition. <laughs> At least, <laughs> but I, uh, uh, I loved. And one of the things that I loved doing was I loved trying to find things about mathematics, like, like that's one of the reasons that I wrote this book. Why do I find mathematics so attractive? Yeah, there are really advanced results in mathematics that I find tremendously attractive. Um, When I'm teaching third semester calculus, there's something called Stokes theorem, which has always blown me away. It's too involved for because it involves line and surface integrals, and we can't discuss that here. But there's really advanced stuff, which is lovely. But so much of, for instance, what we were talking about Ren Riemann's casino and blackwell's bet anybody can understand them you know can at least get a feel for what makes them interesting and that's why i've loved mathematics
1: a very interesting idea in mathematics i think you know it is one of the ideas where people first learn about it i actually remember when i first learned about it, it was was infinity i think i was like i mean i think i had a, a maybe a, a sense of what it was when i was younger but i first heard it spoken in a classroom when i was maybe five or six so it's just like oh this is something to think about because you know you learn about counting and you go from one to ten and then you're like how far can you go and then you hear about infinity so i was wondering if you could just talk about infinity and why you know i think it's probably safe to say infinity might be one of the most or is the most seductive concept in all of mathematics maybe just in in every <laughs> discipline period
0: yeah uh, i um and actually not only is it seductive but for a long portion of time it was scary for mathematicians to talk about it they felt that infinity was one of these things that you could approach but you didn't really know how to handle it. nobody knew how to computer calculate with infinities and The guy who first was able to do it was a mathematician named George Cantor lived in the nineteenth century and was one of those one of those troubled individuals. He was in and out of mental institutions his entire life, and he had two he had a problem that, that the mathematical establishment had difficulty understanding the importance and value of what it was that he was doing and he got into constant uh he got into combat with the establishment who didn't always agree with uh with the value or of uh these problems but it was one of those things where, just like you know later generations recognize how good a painter Van Gogh was or how brilliant a musician Mozart was, they realized how brilliant a mathematician uh cantor was um and one of the examples that I always like to give that illustrates some of the problems involving uh involving infinity are as follows um uh we have uh we have a jar. Um And we have balls with numbered one, two, three, four, five, et cetera, all the way out, an infinite number of balls and here's what i I'm going to do I'm going to drop the balls into the jar according to the following rules: at eleven p m or eleven a m because everybody's awake then I'm going to drop in balls number one through ten, and I'm going to remove ball one at eleven thirty I'm going to drop in balls. 11 through 20 and remove ball two. At 1145, I'm going to drop in balls 21 through 30 and remove ball three. At 1152 and a half, in other words, every time what I'm doing is I'm reducing the amount of time by half. Um, I'm going to drop in balls 31 through 40 and remove ball four. How many balls are in the jar at noon? Well, everybody, here are the two, here's the first way everybody looks at it. Well, every single time you did this, you dropped in nine extra balls. You dropped in balls one through 10, then you remove ball one. Your The jar contains nine more balls. Second time you did it, you dropped in balls 11 through 20, you remove ball two. Jar now contains 18 balls. After you did this three times, Jar contains 27 balls. 9 plus 9 plus 9 plus 9, obviously infinity. But think about it. What ball is in the jar? Ball number 1 isn't. You remove that at 11 o'clock. Ball number 2 isn't. You remove that at 11.30. Ball number 3 isn't. You remove that at 11.45. Ball number 4 isn't. You removed that at 1152 and a half. And the fact is you removed every single one of the balls. So this is why mathematicians had such problems with infinity. Are you trying to tell me that 9 plus 9 plus 9 plus 9 plus 9 equals 0? And that's one of the things that makes infinity subductive and makes it so difficult to come to grips with. And that's why the mathematicians didn't even want to tackle such problems for a while until George Kander showed them how.
1: Uh, And, you know, just to to briefly ask about the, you know, this notion of infinity, uh, there are also like different levels. I've always, I remember learning this and not really getting into it too much, but that there there are different uh, levels of infinity too. Um, I was wondering if you could just quickly touch on that.
0: Sure. Um, uh, it turns out that the way that Cantor said, here's how you have to approach infinity. The way to decide whether or not two sets, when you're talking about, um, for instance, how do you know that two sets are uh, what we call equal? Well, what we do in, uh, in elementary school is when you know, you show them pictures of three snowmen and three cookies and ask them to draw lines connecting them. And so what they do is they draw a line connecting one cookie to one snowman, a second cookie to a second snowman, a third cookie to a third snowman. And so they get an idea of what three consists of. And I, uh, one of the courses that I used to love teaching was math for elementary school teachers. And I'd say to them, you know, I've been studying mathematics for 30 years and I can't tell you what three is. And I still can't. Um, I can tell you lots of properties of three. I can give you some idea of it, but if you were to ask me what three is, I have no idea. Um, It's an abstraction, and it's a very useful abstraction. I can give you examples of sets of three. Well, what George Cantor did was he said, here's how you can compare various sets, various infinite sets. What you can do is you can make one-to-one correspondences between infinite sets the same way that you can make one-to-one correspondences with three snowmen and three cookies. And he discussed this idea, and what he did was he showed that there's a class of sets... Um, which he called the countable or the aleph naught sets, all of which can be put into one-to-one correspondence with the integers. And then there are other sets which can't be put into one-to-one correspondence with the integers. And the example that I always give, uh, in fact, I give it in the book, is... The example of um, the example of the binars um there's an episode in Star Trek, The Next Generation where you have a bunch of binars come in to repair the enterprise and the binars have names that are binary uh, that are binary uh digits they're named like one one zero zero one zero that's one binar and another binar is zero one zero one one zero one zero et etc that's another binar. Well, if you take a look at all the binary sequences that go on forever, just imagine that there's a string of zeros and ones that go on forever. There's another string of zeros and ones that go on forever. And you take the collection of all these strings of infinitely many zeros and ones. For each string, you can say, well, the seventh digit of this string is a one. The 953rd digit of this string is a zero. But it turns out that you can show that that cannot be put into one-to-one correspondence with the integers. And I give a very easy proof of that in the book, and it's or at least what I think is very easy proof, and that isn't too difficult to understand. And this is part of Cantor's brilliance. It's known as the Cantor Diagonal Method. And here's how brilliant Cantor was as a mathematician. He hit for the mathematical cycle. He has objects named after him. There's something called the Cantor Set. Um, he has theorems named after him. There's Cantor's theorem and the Bender Bendix can uh, the Cantor Bendixson theorem. There are a lot of Cantor theorems. And finally, he has a method of proof named after him, Cantor's diagonal method. So, uh, brilliant, brilliant guy.
1: The uh, last question uh, related to the book that I want to ask is: How are you seduced by computers?
0: Okay. Well, I love the idea. I just love the idea that you could do computation. And computers were first coming... uh, uh, I grew up... I was born in 1941. um, And the first electronic computers started appearing in the 1950s. And I can remember when I was a junior in high school. um, When I was a junior in high school, uh, I did my junior thesis in English class on computers. Because... Back then, they hadn't invented the transistor yet. And computers were these huge masses of electronic vacuum tubes, but nonetheless, they could do amazing things. They had, you know, I remember them having UNIVAC. On uh, uh, Univac, which was one of the first electronic computers, predicting the outcome of the nineteen fifty-two elections on television, and the first real job I had, um, which I got when I was uh, uh, when I was essentially a uh, um, a senior in college, while I was between my junior and senior year, was programming an IBM sixteen twenty. And the IBM 1620 was one of the first transistorized uh, computers that were built, basically involving transistors rather than um, rather than uh, electronic vacuum tubes, and. I have a picture of an IBM 1620. It was just a lovely machine. It was about the size of a desk. It had a control panel with blinking lights on it. And my God, when you sat in front of these things, you felt like you were were in command of the Starship Enterprise. And the truth is that the memory capacity of an IBM 1620 was 20 kilobytes for the standard machine. That's about the size of, you know, you open a Word document and it's 20 kilobytes bytes. But nonetheless, you could absolutely do amazing things with it. And I just, you know, I love programming those things. I still program computers, but computers nowadays, even though they do so much more, uh, the thrill is gone. They're, you know, they're appliances, basically. They're more intriguing appliances than, for instance, they're more intriguing appliance than a toaster. But nonetheless, there and, and you can do an awful lot with them, but the thrill I got from sitting at the in front of the IBM 1620 was just absolutely unmatched. But what computers do that makes mathematicians love them is they reveal patterns that you cannot possibly reveal otherwise, simply because the patterns are hidden deep in masses of data or solutions to equations, and without computers, you just haven't got a chance. And the fact is, they reveal patterns. They enable us to do... For instance, you take a look. um, Back in the 1970s, you were lucky if a weather prediction weather forecast was accurate two days out. Nowadays, weather forecasts are out several are accurate several weeks in advance. The long range pro the long range prognoses are pretty accurate too. And one of the reasons is that the way that we forecast weather is we don't go out and wet our thumb and hold it up and say winds from the west, it's going to rain. What you do is you get a lot of data. There are equations that govern that fl- uh, govern fluid flow. Um, and these equations cannot be solved algebraically, or at least we haven't managed to do so yet, but they can be solved numerically. We can extrapolate the patterns. We can do so much with them. And that's why computers are, you know, computers are probably the greatest mathematical tool ever invented. They're fabulous.
1: Two uh, theorems that you discuss with uh, wonderful names, the, the Harry Billiard Ball Theorem and the Ham Sandwich Theorem uh, get attention in the book. I was wondering if you could just uh, end the interview by talking a little bit about these theorems. Be delighted. Um, the Harry
0: Billiard Ball Theorem says, well, the mathematics says there's no such thing as a, uh, as a non-zero continuous vector field on an even dimensional sphere. Sure sounds impressive. Um, It also sounds like I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. But suppose you put it this way. You can't comb a hairy billiard ball without getting cowlicks. Try it. Just think about it. What happens if you put a lot of hair and you try and comb it by combing parallel to the equator? You're going to get a cowlick at the North Pole and one at the South Pole. You can't comb a hairy billiard ball without getting cowlicks. That's that. That's the hairy billiard ball theorem. And the other is the ham sandwich theorem. Um, It's a theorem. uh, It's a theorem from a branch of mathematics called measure theory. But here's a way to look at it. So your typical ham sandwich consists of two slices of bread and a slice of ham. So here's what I want you to do. Take the slice of bread, toss it anywhere in the... Take one of the, each of the slices of bread, toss them anywhere in the universe at any angle whatsoever, and then toss the slice of ham anywhere in the universe at any angle whatsoever. You can take a very large knife and angle it in such a fashion that if you make a linear cut with that knife, in other words, move the knife in a straight line, what will happen is half the bread and ham will lie on one side of the cut and half the bread and ham will lie on the other side.
1: That's that, that is not what I would assume. That's bizarre, but that's very interesting. (laughs) I love that. I, I, my favorite thing with these theorems is just the idea of, of more so just thinking about what someone was doing, you know, like when they came up with the idea, like what was the, uh, (laughs) like someone must've been making a sandwich and, you know, they dropped their sandwich on the floor and had some Realize it. Maybe there's a there's a story behind that the hand sandwich. Would...
0: There might be, but I don't think that's what happens when the theorem itself is discovered. I think that's what happens when somebody is thinking about the theorem and notices, hey. Um, and for instance, the example of Riemann's casino that I described earlier. Well, I spent some time when I was younger counting cards at blackjack, so I was familiar with casinos. And when I saw Riemann's theorem. On the uh, condition, you know, on uh, on the conditional convergence, conditionally con- rearrangements of conditionally convergent infinite series, because I'd had some experience. Um, with uh, uh, going to casinos, that popped into my mind. And I'm pretty sure that the hairy billiard ball theorem, things like that, the original theorem wasn't developed to describe a hairy billiard ball. Somebody just did some mathematics and somebody later on noticed, hey, here's an interesting application of that
1: theorem. So that's, yeah, that's where, you know, just pure mathematical that's discovery. My guess.
0: No guarantee. I,
1: I, that makes a lot of sense because I feel like so many cases around you know, mathematical application came, you know, it, the application came after. And that's the, the, you know, so much of the value of just people doing math is not so much that it will, you know, solve a problem in the, sh- in the near term, but, you know, that down the road, someone will figure out a interesting application, even if, you know, like had a coma, hairy billiard ball, which, you know. <laughs>
0: uh, I Can I just say one thing about my personal experience yeah. with that? <laughs> Okay. Um I was a pure mathematician and by pure mathematician I meant um I uh the first portion of my career I worked with <clears throat> I worked with structures called Banach spaces. And while these have applications to various places in uh in physics, I certainly wasn't I was doing just mathematics. I had no idea of the math uh, of the applications. Um I thought that you know nobody would ever pay attention to this. And in the late 1970s, all of a sudden, the paper that I've written, I'd written the paper and I was getting requests from electrical engineers all over the planet um, for this uh, for this paper. And I looked into it and I, I asked, why are you asking about this? And they said, well, we've discovered that this uh, that this applies to the creation of certain types of signal processors. Wow. I never would have thought that. And the best example of this that I know of, and here's a really great place to, confu- uh, uh, to conclude this interview. It's something that everybody is in touch with every single day of their lives. Um, In the 1940s, there was a brilliant mathematician named uh, George Hardy. He was a Brit, and he'd spent his life investigating an, an area of pure mathematics called number theory. And he wrote a book called A Mathematician's Apology, in which basically he said, you know, the world pays respects to artists and musicians who spend their lives investigating their idea of beauty. Well, I'm a mathematician. My idea of beauty is the patterns that I see in numbers. And that's what I've been, that's what I've done with my life. And even though I'm sure that I've done nothing whatsoever, that's of practical value. Uh, I feel that I feel like an artist. I've spent my life investigating beautiful patterns and, uh, um, uh, I, I don't feel that you know. I don't feel. I feel that my life has been worthwhile because I've you know managed to show at least some of the some of this beauty, even if only a few people can recognize it. Um, and that was a mathematician's apology, and it's written in the early 1940s. And in the 1970s, three mathematicians Revesh, uh, uh, Shamir, and Edelman, discovered that one of the things that um, Hardy had worked on, which was the factorization, the problem of splitting a number that was the product of two large primes, how difficult that was, could be used to create passwords that were virtually unbreakable. And every single password, computer password that you use, whether it's to your bank account or whether it's to your email or whether it enables you to get on a website they all rely on the RSA algorithm, which is based on the difficulty that Hardy showed that one had to factor numbers that were the product of two large primes. And so it's just a pity that Hardy... Died before this happened because he thought that what he had done would never have any practical value, and yet what he did had such practical value that every day it touches the lives of practically everyone on this planet. It's just amazing, and that's the story of mathematics right there. Yeah, it's
1: uh, slightly tragic, but you know, I I I think that this is just such a great example of you know why people should explore things they find interesting just for the sake of them being interesting, as opposed to you know, some, because it will serve some, some great end, greater end. And uh,
0: and even if it doesn't, hey, if you had fun doing it and it prevented you from right. doing bad yes. things. Yes. Pre- yes. It's
1: be preventative. <laughs> That's true. too. Yeah.
0: yeah. Nothing is as harmless as a mathematician doing mathematics.
1: Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, you, you know, I, I think uh, now that we've covered the book, I, I just thought it would be best to conclude by asking you if there's, any way that that listeners can get in touch with you, and also if there's anything else they're working on.
0: Um, yeah, I have. Uh, I do have another book that's coming out the, in the spring, and um, it's a history of science. And uh, because I uh, I have an in with uh, Marshall Poe, who runs the New Books Network, I'm sure I can get him to do a podcast on that. But. I, uh, one of the things that I have always felt is that anybody who is in academics should be responsive to any question asked by anybody at any time. And I I've been tremendously fortunate because, for instance, there are mathematicians and scientists who are far better known than I am. But I would write Linus. I wrote Linus Pauling. Answered immediately. Sent me a copy of his book. I wrote Freeman Dyson. I wrote some of the top mathematicians and scientists in the world. They got back to me immediately. Anybody who writes me a question, uh, there's no such thing as a dumb question. If it helps you understand or appreciate something, that's what. That I've spent my life doing. And my address, my email address is james.stein, J-A-M-E-S dot S-T-E-I-N at C-S-U-L-B dot E-D-U. Um, C-S-U-L-B dot E-D-U. That's California State University Long Beach dot E-D-U. Um, you can probably also, um, if the book is Seduced by Mathematics, which has an unforgettable title, uh, or at least I think it's unforgettable. I certainly think um, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's one of the reasons that I chose it. And the author is, if you just Google uh, seduced by mathematics, you'll find it. But the author is James Stein, because that's my full name, but everybody calls me Jim. You can I, too. Uh,
1: well, thank you, Jim. I, I actually, it's part of what I liked so much with the title seduced by mathematics is it's, it's actually, it seems like it's in the tradition of math books that have uh, Sort of uh, sexy titles like "The Joy of X" uh, by Steven Strogatz. Uh, so I, I liked it for that reason. It's a, it's.
0: Oh, okay. Good. <laughs> uh,
1: well, well, Jim, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great to talk to you about it's your book. It's been a pleasure. I'm sure you know that you you've created a lot of uh, mentioned a lot of interesting theorems that uh, I certainly will uh, will try and think about. I definitely won't solve any of them, but uh, I'll let you know if I do. <laughs> <laughs> Please All do. Right. Great. Great to talk to you.
0: Take care.